Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Chaloner. The podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating the people who keep this country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisation and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. If you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, please go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Joining me on today's programme on a cool and cloudy autumn day here in the capital is Elizabeth Coe. Elizabeth is the Chief Executive of the NACCC, short for the National Association of Child Contact Centres. Elizabeth, very warm welcome to yourself and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us on the programme. Thank you. Um, Yes, as I say, um, Elizabeth Coe from National Association of Child Contact Centres. We are a membership organisation and we have... 340 centres throughout the UK in Northern Ireland and Wales. And uh, we are uh, responsible for accrediting um, and training all of the volunteers and staff that work in contact centres in accordance with the national standards. So the impact of coronavirus on me particularly um, was uh, in some ways quite positive, less travel more time to work. So instead of three hours traveling each day, I had more time to do what I'm much better at, I think. Um, and uh, one of the things that I found uh, quite challenging was the adapting to using the internet much more than before for meetings um, and finding a much more fluid way of working. So it didn't matter where anybody was, you could actually make arrangements for any almost any time during the day. Um, And I realized that there were benefits of virtual meetings, much more focused. Um, And one of the things that I'm absolutely passionate about is, or certainly was through this uh, COVID uh, pandemic, was developing a strategy for ensuring that children were able to not be disadvantaged and have the contact with the person that they love most, and that is the parent that has left the home. So in organisational and sector terms, uh, one of the things that uh, completely um, closed us down was a a message from Sir Andrew McFarlane, who's the president of the family division, Mm. who announced um, at the end of uh, March that there was to have no face-to-face contact. It was the law we had to close. So um, one of the things that we worried about was that in, in usual years, on average, we managed to... Uh, provide contact for a child and an abs- and, the, and a non-resident parent, uh, 17,000 children. So what were we going to do about those children who will be devastated about not having that contact with the parent? So we ran around and panicked in the office for uh, half an hour or so. And then as a team, we actually sat down and thought, well, what can we do about this? And... Um, we had heard of another centre that had started to think about this as well and were thinking about developing a Skype app for to be able to offer virtual contact. Um, and so we uh, developed that, the app for um, the virtual contact, which was safe and secure. And we had def- different features on it that we could close down um, if a parent started to say inappropriate things, which sometimes they do, you know, if they're angry with the other parent they might say oh that awful woman wouldn't let me see you or things like that so we had a a facility to be able to do that Um, and so it was uh, pretty secure now what we've managed to do 
over the period of, of COVID so far is we've at least managed over 4,000 virtual contacts. So from not from a standing start, we've managed to get something up and running. So one of the things that we've also been concerned about in the sector are the issues of increased domestic abuse and mental health and the impact on children. Um, so, you know, we have to be concerned about that for the future. Um, some of the finance, some financial issues, because, of course, um, as centres were closed down, although most centres are free of charge, they don't charge. Some do make a small donation. Um, and of course, with them being closed, they had absolutely no money, so no income from them. So, um, so one of the things that we've had to try and do with our members is to kind of support them through um, social media, advice on, on reopening when they wanted to do that. And we took the opportunity during this time to do training with centres. So we managed to train 470 people on risk assessment and domestic abuse. So there's, there's been quite a, quite a lot going on in, in the background. So it's not as if we've twiddled our thumbs over this time. So we had to be also very um, concerned about the care, caring for our staff because they were working from home. Mm. So managing to keep in touch with them um, almost uh, on a daily basis just to touch bases. And um, we looked at some of the challenges and opportunities um, for uh, some of the volunteers in terms of offering virtual contact because a lot of our volunteers, a lot of the centres had to close anyway because a lot of the volunteers, of which we have 4,000, are people who are over 70. So a lot of them had to self-isolate. So um, one of the things that we did with them with virtual contact in terms of training was, well, you don't actually have to be at a centre to be able to do virtual contact. So we were able to do some training with them about the use of the Skype app and, use, uh, and using a computer. And so they were able to offer virtual contact so that children got what they needed. So um, in terms of the team, um, one of the things I would say about my team is we're a very small team, but we're a, a very strong, uh, responsive team. And, one, and we thought very much about how we were going to support our members, support children and support each other. And I would say that my management style is about encouraging innovation, allowing people to, like colleagues, to take personal leadership for their areas and creating new ways of working organically. I mean, it, it's just every day we have um, a management meeting just to touch bases, just to make sure everybody's kind of got an agenda, they know what they want to do, what they want to take forward. And through that, we've managed to develop a lot of things one of the most brilliant things that we've done is an activity guide for a parent to use with a child on the other side of a computer screen because it is not a natural environment for them to sit at a computer screen for 30 minutes at a time. Not to, you know, they just don't do that normally. So we developed this activity guide so that they could start to um, play games on, on the computer and be able to communicate more easily. And that has worked even for quite small children. So we're very proud of that. Um, so in, in terms of key challenges, I'd say that in supporting centres to adopt uh, virtual contact um, and addressed a range of challenges around using the technology and child safety, which was quite high on our agenda. 
And we highlighted the need uh, to be flexible and creative in the approach. Um, and leadership really is about enabling and supporting um, the third sector. So there was some pushback from some parents mm. who have seen COVID as a reason to withhold contact. But Sir Andrew McFarlane has been very vocal on addressing this and saying that um, that it will be very frowned upon by courts if that should happen. So we've sought to engage centres and understand um, if there are legitimate fears around um, around virtual contact training gaps, you know, around technology and safety. But mm-hmm. what we found is that it's important to have really good communication, clear messaging. Um, and uh, we've made sure that we've sought guidance from the right people to be able to help centres reopen. And, and a huge number of centres have now reopened and we're getting guidance all the time about what they must do and what they mustn't do. Um, so I think we've been quite innovative and creative about how we've taken things forward. Certainly seems to be the case and it's encouraging news that some of the contact centres are now beginning to reopen under so COVID secure precautions because there is, however effective, of course, the remote contact might be, there sometimes is no replica for that face-to-face human social interaction that I think we did take for granted before. Um, Absolutely. With regards to the uh, the remote provision of contact, just how long do you think this is going to be in place as a solution and could it well be the status quo for several years to come simply because even when... have a working vaccine in place it's not going to work as a magic bullet that's going to revert everything back to normality no i agree with you face to face is the most desirable if at all possible but um in the absence of that i think virtual contact is the way that i would like to see the future quite apart from anything else um i would like them i would like centers to be able to offer virtual contact to parents who live abroad to people who are in the services, who are on, you know, on missions, who, who are away for six months at a time, for people who maybe have a disability and who can't get to a centre um, or who, who can't afford to get to a centre, um, perhaps only once every three months, but to be able to have virtual contact in the meantime, because a gap of three months for a young child is quite a lot. They've forget the person you know they've got to sort of almost start from scratch so uh, my my vision and my ambition for the future is that more and more centers will do virtual contact and that all of those that are already doing it will continue and develop it further and with regard to um, the uh, the next 12 months, um, we know that it's going to be a very difficult winter because it does seem that we are starting to sort of enter a second wave of the uh, the virus. Um, but over that period of time, um, what sort of changes are you expecting to see within your line of work? And indeed, where do you want your organisation to be in a year's time? And what are you hoping to have achieved? Well, I'm hoping to uh, achieve not, not closures. I'm hoping that centres will be able to reopen safely and be able to develop some of the things that they're already developing, which is in where we'd normally have 10 families just running around in a hall. Um, They do things like have pods in those um, centres so that each family can have their own safety pod and be able to still have their contact in just the same way. Um, and I personally, I think we, we need as an organisation to make sure that we support our members to be able to develop. And we're trying to do that on a regular basis by having meetings with them. We've got something called the Coffee Shop Live, where mm-hmm. we have um, on, on a monthly basis, we get as many people as want to join us on Teams. 
um, and ha- and so they all meet on this on this um, conference and share ideas about how they do things. Um, and uh, the other thing that we need to do is keep on top of any guidance that comes out of the government and the um, Department of Health about keeping people safe and what they need to do um, and, and be able to make sure that we let our members know in good time what's possible. Bearing in mind also we have uh, centres in Northern Ireland and Wales, so we have to have the um, information from all the health departments in, and, and Minister for Wales, etc. Um, around the, around the various parts of the UK, not just in in England. Mm. So we do try to keep um, abreast of what's happening, what the most the uh, most up to date information is. And the other thing that we have to do is keep government in, um, informed because um, we get a grant for the MO from the MOJ uh, for our service, and we keep the MOJ and other and MPs informed of who's open and what they're doing, and if they're doing virtual contact or not. Because actually, it doesn't matter where the centre is mm. if they're doing virtual contact, because, you know, they, it, you can do it wherever you are and and, the, and wherever the child is. So, um, you know, but my ambition would be that more and more centres would take it on and develop it further. Let's certainly hope so. And I think looking into innovative new solutions for these very new problems and also the heightened communication and collaboration you've talked about there are some very real positives to come out of the uh, the pandemic. And if we just focus on some of the positives and move away from the doom and gloom for a moment, just before we do wrap things up on the programme today, Elizabeth, are there any real positives that you feel that you can take from this last few months and anything maybe that you've learnt in your leadership capacity from having this experience? Um. Well, I think the, how it, it's been how important that I've got a good team around me, mm. and that we work we work well together. We think of ideas, we develop those ideas, and put them into practice. And I think that's one of the best things that happened during this is our ability to be able to adapt and uh, go with the flow and try to make sure that we maintain as much of a service as we had before as possible and that children get what they need and that is the support of a loving parent even if it's through virtual contact exactly right and um, I think it's so right what you say there the importance of being able to adapt and to innovate during this time they are such key facets of leadership and we've seen so much of it over the last few months and let's hope that that continues and in fact um, Elizabeth just given how enlightening it's being as well welcoming you onto the program today to discuss your views I actually think it would be wonderful at some point in the next year if we could catch up and have you back on the show just to see how things are sort of coming along in that respect certainly be very happy to do that. I'd welcome that opportunity as well. I've thoroughly enjoyed your company on the air with us today. It's been a real, real pleasure. And um, most importantly as well, until we do hopefully get to speak again in future, please do take care and stay safe with everything that's still going on because we're certainly not out of the woods with this yet. But let's keep our fingers crossed that we won't be stuck in the COVID rut for too much longer. Indeed. Thank you. I'd also like to reiterate that message to everyone tuning into the podcast today. Please do continue to look after yourself, stay well, and also be considerate of others because it does make such a difference in saving lives. It was a pleasure for me to welcome Elizabeth Coe, Chief Executive of the National Association of Child Contact Centres, onto today's programme. Um, next up on the show today, we'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with former Education Secretary and Incumbent Leaders Council 
chairman, Lord Blunkett, who enjoyed a distinguished political career despite being blind from birth. Lord Blunkett held a number of senior positions in the cabinet of Tony Blair during his premiership and served as the MP for his Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years. He has been a member of Parliament's Upper House since August 2015. And I do hope that you all enjoy listening just as much as Matthew relished the opportunity to speak with him. That will be coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, Well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, which uh, we must touch on. Um, What would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world. And being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to. But we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up 
inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically, locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself. And there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's a severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons, uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, uh, the food chain and the like. Uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's a, had his life in... Uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. 
And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different hi interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and consent mm. that's required uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear right. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top, and that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice, uh, the health secretary often chairs corporate meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a Secretary of State, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows, those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust, and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that 
Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, now- it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions, having received advice, obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm-hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part, pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond, we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh, where the university had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we we saw SARS and other things emerging. I I think people criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You you can you can sponsor reports. This is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Uh, shut um, these kind of things you, you can look at, but you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, Mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. 
I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. Because very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems if that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think, again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without uh, creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives for a variety of reasons are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19 those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it 
tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is layered in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect and what happens with one will then have a major impact on another and then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected so I very much if I were in government and I always think of things in that context what would I do if I were in government I would be on the side from the second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the, uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent a uh, professional lawyer who, as Director of Public Prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, 
that has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the, uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakira has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition, more importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition as well as a government that we clearly want to do well because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector. People with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them. Above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Sakir is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Sakir need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One, which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Mr. Keir Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakira needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can 
support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government. Mm-hmm. But also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed as it did in the 1980s and early 90s to become the electable government with the greatest majority in historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn Mm -hmm. from each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Plunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.